We're going to get right into our time in the Word of God today. We're in Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 17 through 21. And the title of today's uh, sermon is called uh, The Betrayal of Judas, or title number two, because I couldn't pick which one I wanted, uh, How God Loves You at Your Worst Moment. How God Loves You at Your Absolute Worst Moment. Uh, So let's pray before we get started. My God, I pray that you would, well, I enter your presence with thanksgiving and I enter your courts with praise. I know that you are in heaven right now, but you're also with us. Uh, You choose to dwell with us. And uh, for all of us who have invited you to come and dwell in our hearts, you make your home in our hearts. And God, I pray uh, that you would show us how real you are. I pray that you would um, convince our hearts that you can be trusted, that your presence is so real. I'm reminded this morning of Thomas, who um, uh, said, unless I see the wounds in his hands and the holes in his feet, I'm not going to believe. But then after you uh, showed up with him, you told him, blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe. And God, I pray. Uh, that you would show us how real you are and um, show us your power. Give us your um, spirit so that we can know and feel and and understand the things that you want us to know. And God, I pray that as we follow you uh, over time, Lord, that we become less dependent on our feelings and that we would instead choose to trust what we know is true and that we would uh, follow you every day. And when we fail and when we fall, I pray that we would never be tricked by the enemy into thinking that we have fallen too far, but that we would run back to you. We would receive your mercy and your grace. And God, um, all these things, Lord, are, are because of what you have done for us on the cross. You've loved us when we did not deserve it, and you still pursue us today. And Lord, I pray that we would allow ourselves to be caught by you, to be discovered by you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, all right. Well, we're going to start talking about Judas. Judas, uh, as you guys know, uh, was one of the 12 disciples, right? And he's about to betray Jesus. But what I want you to know, and this is, I want you to get out of your mind what you think you know about Judas. And, and this morning, I want you to think about Judas, that Judas was actually a regular guy, a normal guy. Uh, just picture the most normal guy in your mind. Just, he didn't wear radical clothes. Uh, he's just like you and me. And I know you're thinking right now, maybe, maybe I've already offended you, haven't I? Uh, by, uh, you know, calling you that that you could be like Judas. Uh, But that's what we're going to be talking about today. Judas wasn't a, uh, you know, he wasn't wearing ACDC t-shirts. He didn't have satanic dragon tattoos all over his arms. Uh, He didn't have dark, mysterious eyes with black eyeliner and a foreboding scowl on his face. And there wasn't a dark cloud of evil dusts or, you know, uh, whatever, following him. 
uh, he, he, there was nothing on the outside that would have made you think that Judas was evil or the betrayer. He was a typical guy. In fact, more than a typical guy, he was one of the 12 chosen apostles. So he was kind of like a pastor in training. Everyone liked him, it seemed. Nobody expected that this would be the guy that would betray Jesus. Everyone respected him. He was a close friend of Jesus. He spent three years as his student, just like the other disciples. You know, he wasn't failing all of his disciple exams every week. You know, every, you know, all of his answers are like, I hate you, God, and I hope you die. You know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like that. He was appearing to be on the right path. And so what I'm saying here is that Judas could have been any one of us. We can look at this story and put ourselves in the position of the betrayer. You know, when we first look at the story and when we're young Christians or not even believers, we see Judas as the bad guy. But as we grow, I think we see that Judas is much more like us than we would have ever hoped or, you know, thought. We shouldn't always view ourselves as the good guy in the stories in the Bible. We are generally the villains. We're the villains who uh, are always failing and messing up. And Jesus is the good guy. And what we're going to see here today, and I'm really excited to talk about, is the incomprehensible love of God for villains. Villains are loved by God. God inexplicably loves sinners. And that is a great thing because we are all tragically huge sinners. That is who we are. And after we stop lying to ourselves, trying to justify our selfish behavior and failures, when we finally are forced to acknowledge the truth that we are dirty, rotten sinners, there is some good news there. And we're going to find and discover that good news today is that God truly loves sinners, which is a good thing because we are those sinners. All right, well, let's look at our text now, Mark chapter 14, verse 17. And in the evening, he came with the 12. Remember, he uh, last week we studied that he had sent his disciples to prepare the way for the Passover dinner. Uh, He was going to eat this Passover dinner with his disciples. And and that's what we looked at last week. We reminded ourselves what Passover was all about, that the Passover lamb was slain to uh, provide salvation for the people. And then we looked at how Jesus was about, just about to fulfill this Passover lamb um, story. He's the fulfillment of the entire deal. So in the evening, after the disciples had prepared all this, uh, they sat down and ate. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. And the Son of Man goes, indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Wow. So that's pretty intense. It's a a pretty um, 
you know, if you were reading this story for the first time, I think you would be kind of shocked. And, and as these uh, friends, this was a tight group of friends, these 12 apostles and Jesus and the people that were with him. And this revelation shocked these disciples. They did not expect that one of them would betray Jesus. They had been best friends with him. They had committed themselves, all of them, even Judas, right? And they had no idea which one of them it could be. Again, Jesus wasn't a devil-looking bad guy. He didn't have horns and, you know, creepy, dark, you know, black hair. But Judas was the betrayer. He absolutely was the betrayer. And what does that mean? It means that he had made a decision in his heart. He had made a decision in his heart that no one but the Lord could see. Only Jesus could see in his heart. And he made a decision that he would never believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean he didn't believe Jesus existed. He knows Jesus was there. He knows Jesus was his friend. But he had made a decision that he would never place his faith exclusively in this Jesus. He wouldn't do it. And this is what Jesus calls this great betrayal, being betrayed. It means to reject what Jesus says about himself and choose, really, to disbelieve him. To disbelieve him. And just maybe, we are so pride-filled that we think we could never be this person. That we think Judas is so bad, we would never betray Jesus. Um, But actually, this kind of betrayal is extremely common, even in our day. Okay? Because it's the choice to trust in ourselves before trusting in Jesus. It's faith in self instead of faith in Jesus. I read a quote this week from uh, Charles Finney, who uh, is an awesome preacher, and he says, Faith implies the full renunciation of self. I renounce self, right? Uh, such renunciation is fully involved in the idea of self-committal to God. So to have faith in Jesus means you're saying, I'm going to say no to myself and I'm going to say yes to God in all things. It's not a, I'm going to have faith just to have God forgive my sins. It's I'm going to live by faith completely in everything. I'm going to trust in God. Judas refuses to commit himself to God. He took cast his hope exclusively on Jesus. So Judas is now the bad guy of the story because he doesn't think he needs Jesus and he's rejecting this offer that Jesus is giving him of life and forgiveness. That's his choice. He says, I don't need you, God, and I don't trust you, God. If Jesus is who you have sent, God, I'm done with it. I don't need that. So my question for you today is, how does Jesus treat this scoundrel, Judas? What does Jesus do? And the reason I have to ask this question sincerely with all my heart is because I am also a betrayer sometimes. I am also a scoundrel. I am a Judas. 
And I need to know what Jesus thinks of me when I am at my worst. Not my best. When you are stressed out and angry, that is who you really are. That's the real you. The nice, calm, perfect, Caleb singing version of me that has nothing wrong with me and I'm not worried or stressed out about anything is not the real me. That's not who I'd like to be all the time. But the real me comes out when trials appear in my life. When I'm treated unfairly, when I'm hurt, when I'm discouraged, when I'm dealing with failure and sickness. That's the real bad, unwashed, messed up me. That's who I am. So what does Jesus think of this selfish, sinful, scarred, and scared version of me? Well, he loves me. He absolutely loves that version of me. In our text, Jesus dips the bread in the bowl with Judas. In John's gospel, it says that he offered Judas the sop, S-O-P, which we don't use that word much, so I had to look up the history of that word to figure out what that word meant. And it was when you would dip the bread into the liquid or kind of jam of the meal and hand it to someone who you respected. It was like giving them a Dundee for an award. It was to be handed the sop was the ho- by the host of the meal was the ultimate form of respect and love. That is what Jesus is doing to his betraying friend, showing him respect and love. So th- get that. At the moment of this deepest betrayal of Judas, his whole life, Jesus is offering him love and respect. Jesus still loves Judas, even at his worst, most terrible and vile and selfish moment. And have you guys ever heard the expression, the toast of the town, the toast of the town? Well, that actually derives from the practice of dipping the spiced toast bread into the liquid of a meal and honoring the dinner guest, uh, a dinner guest, by referring to him as the toast of the town, which implies that that guest added spice to the party, just added flavor to the evening. It was giving, it was saying, you are awesome and I love you. You are great. So what I see in this is that Jesus not only loves Judas with this, you know, godly love, but he actually likes Judas. Judas is his friend. He cares about him. And he really thinks he adds to the party. He cares about his well-being because he has a deep-seated love for Judas. How is that possible? I agree that in my human mind... I recoil at this kind of free and willy-nilly love that Jesus offers to such an evil guy like Judas. It seems illogical. Yet it's also the kind of love that in my deepest heart of hearts, I think I have a suspicion that I need that kind of love. Because again, 
I am usually the bad guy in these stories that I'm reading in the Bible. I'm going to read to you a verse, John 3.16, which most of you probably have memorized. It's probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, but we need to take a fresh look at this in light of the character that we're looking at, Judas, and the love that Jesus is showing to him right now. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible, there, sorry, this verse in the Bible is so familiar to us, but we got to look at it closely because it is so filled with life and life-giving energy. You know, God so loved the world is how it started. This is our topic today. How can God love the world when the world doesn't deserve to be loved? Every human has known the ways of God and yet has rejected them. The Ten Commandments today are hated because they testify to us of our guilt and failure. And so people would rather hate those laws and despise the God who gave them than acknowledge the fact that they have failed in the standard of being human. Yet God still loves them and loves us despite our failures. How can this be? We're going to read Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Ungodly. Without strength. Failures. Wicked. Selfish. That is us. We qualify for what? For God's love. Christ died because he loved us on the cross. For who? For the ungodly. And we qualify for that. And Judas qualifies for that. We are the toast of the town. The burnt, moldy toast. Our text in in Romans chapter 5 continues and says, For scarcely would a righteous man die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, God-hating, Christ-rejecting, failing at keeping his standard sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't righteous. We weren't good. There is no pressure to be in order to be loved by God. Because Jesus demonstrates his love for us while we were sinners. At the same moment, in the moment that we are in our deepest, darkest, sinful, rejecting, running from God, darkness. Jesus' love does not fade. Nothing good in us gains this love. Nothing good in us earns this love. Nothing you can do to get this love. Nothing about you is needed for God to love you. He simply loves you for you. 
In fact, he loves you in spite of all your flaws and all your character. He doesn't need your character to be good. He doesn't need you to be better or be clean. He loves you now. Even if now is your worst moment. You want proof that he loves you? This verse says his life freely offered on the cross is that proof. It speaks of his love. It shouts love. It screams love. It bleeds love. Enough love to melt the hardest, most rebellious heart. Jesus saves us with his love. And Jesus loves even the worst of sinners, every single one. We're going to read our verse again, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If Jesus loved Judas enough to die for his sins and lovingly respect him on the night of his betrayal, then he surely loves you today. Because I really don't think you're as bad as Judas. Maybe close, but probably not. This guy really is the toast of the town when it comes to betraying Jesus. But let's think a little bit deeper about the love of God for sinners. And I want to remind you of a story from the Old Testament that is kind of difficult and awkward to read sometimes when we are going through uh, the, the books of, of Samuel and, and First and Second Kings. Um, and it's a story about David and his son Absalom. David was Israel's second king. And the Bible says simply this, that David was a man after God's own heart. He's amazing. David had this, um, this divinely tender and loving heart. And, and David was not perfect. He was still a man. But in these stories about him, you can see these flashes of a divine love that was planted in him. So, um, he's a man after God's own heart. And I think that the clearest picture of God, of David's godlike heart was in the tragic story of his son, Absalom. And this story shows us that, that God's love, God does not love us because we deserve it or because we have the character he approves of. That's not the basis of his love. He doesn't love us because we live lives that honor him or we've made good choices. His love is based on something else completely. But it's just as real and powerful as any love in the universe. Let, let me tell you a little bit about Absalom. Absalom wanted to be the king. He had a hunger and a thirst for power. Absalom tried to steal the throne of the kingdom from his own father, David. Absalom lied. Absalom stole. Absalom dishonored David's bed 
sleeping with his wives in view of all the people to see. Absalom tried to kill his own father. Talk about a Judas-like betrayal, a failure, a sinful, rebellious son. How would you respond if your son did these things? Their character was bad. They were a betrayal. Well, David loved him. What? Yes, that's right. David had an insatiable, unstoppable love for his son that was not based on Absalom's character. David's army went to war with Absalom and David begged them as they went out. David was old and too old to fight. So David begged his commander, Joab, and all his generals, please be merciful to my son. Even though Absalom was wanting to kill them, David, was a- David asked them to be merciful. And when news came back after this battle that his son was killed in this rebellion, David shows us the heart of God on display for all to see in the most powerful, relevant display of God's heart. He wept bitterly and cried for his son. He lamented. He spoke his name over and over. He said, Absalom, my son. Oh, Absalom, my son. David didn't love his son for his actions or his character, but because he truly cared for his well-being. He just loved him. Even and this love that David had made everybody uncomfortable. It caused everybody to, to question, this guy doesn't deserve your love, David. Even his general Joab confronted him. He recoiled at this love. He rebuked David and said, you don't care if all of us would have died, do you? You would have rather all of us die and he live, don't you, David? You just love this terrible kid and he doesn't deserve your love. And Joab was right. If his love was based on character, which is how Joab saw things based on law and law keeping, Absalom had no right to be loved. But David was a man after God's heart and God's love has nothing to do with our law keeping. God simply loves us deeply. Finney, who I quoted before, I'll quote him again. He described the situation like this. To rebuke David, to this rebuke of Joab, David could only answer, I have only given scope to the outbursting of a father's heart. And indeed, it was only the deep yearnings of a pious father's heart that sought expression in such words and groans as, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would to God that I would died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
an ungodly son dies in his sins and a pious father bemoans his awful death in such language as this. We rarely find anything in history that so forcibly illustrates God's love to sinners as does this lamentation of David over Absalom. But I want us to see something really cool. What David could not do, God did. David couldn't give his life in exchange for the one that he loved. But God actually did give his life on the cross in exchange for the rebellious son that he loves, me and you. We're going to read our verse again, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what do I need to do if I am a Judas? What if I don't want to be a Judas anymore? What if I recognize that, yes, I have betrayed God. I have not believed, but I want to change that. What do I do? This verse says that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The consequences are severe for this choice. If I'm going to be the betrayer or if I'm going to be the believer. He says the consequences, the choice is between perishing and everlasting life. Everlasting death and dying versus everlasting life and living. That's the the stakes. And he says here, all that is required of you is faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in the life Jesus has offered. Faith. Again, Finney says, our part is the great, our part of faith, excuse me, having faith is the great condition of being saved. The longer I live, the more clearly I see that faith refers especially to believing in the divinity of Christ, believing that Jesus was God, embracing practically his power to save and fully admitting that the case is one for which no power short of divine is adequate. You have to believe Jesus was God and that it takes God's power to save you. That's what it's all about. Jesus said, do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you believe that I can raise your dead, that I can heal your sick, that I can cast out your devils, that I can forgive your sins? Do you believe this? If you do, then cast yourself on this power to save. The substance of faith then is believing that Jesus is the true son of God and then trusting him as the son of God, trusting that he gave his life for you on the cross. My whole job is to believe what, that Jesus was God, that Jesus loved me and that God gave his life to save me. That is all that is laid upon me. And that is the opposite of Judas and what Judas did. 
Jesus, Judas refused to believe that Jesus was God. He refused to believe that God loved him, and he refused to believe that God could save him through the death of Jesus on the cross. Judas thought Jesus was just a man. And so it was up to Judas himself to make things happen. Judas refused to believe in Jesus. This is the great battle and war that we face today. Are we going to believe what Jesus said and did? Or are we going to turn our backs on him and try to do things ourselves? Try to accomplish it, no matter what it is. Jesus loved you at your worst. He's not yelling at you. He's not disappointed in you. He is 100% willing to die for you and to offer you all of his grace and mercy. And he is full of mercy and grace. Jesus has the kind of love that weeps over his people. Remember just two or three days before this event, Jesus walked into Jerusalem and he overlooked Jerusalem as he was coming down the Mount of Olives and he wept over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you under my wings, but you didn't know that this was your day. He poured out his heart. He was broken in his love. Just like David cried, Absalom, my son, Jesus cried, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I love you even though Jerusalem hated him and was just about to murder him. I'm going to read to you Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. Hosea 11, 8. God is speaking and he is weeping and he is crying out and he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim, another name for Israel? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma?" How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. These other lands that God had given up on and had turned over to judgment and they had been destroyed. And God is like, I cannot give up on you, even though you are rebellious people. It says God's heart was twisted inside him, churned. His sympathy, his love was stirred. He bubbles over with compassion and mercy and forgiveness. He has no desire to condemn you. He wants to defend you and to draw you near to him, even if you have run far away. And even if you don't come back today and you come back in five years or ten years, God will still be there to give you mercy. But boy, would it be a shame if you died unexpectedly before then. Wouldn't it be a shame if time ran out and the alarm went off before you had come back to this love that God has for you? Will you believe it? Will you call out to receive God's salvation and love today? God's love for Judas displays very clearly his love for you. But what happens with Judas? Well, we all know Judas rejects 
God, Jesus's offer of love and forgiveness and honor. And Judas dies a horrible, disgusting death. And he becomes a parable to all who will choose the same choice he chooses, which is, I reject you, Jesus. I will not believe in what you have done. I don't believe in it. Judas has become a parable and an example of all who make that choice. He kills himself. He hangs himself. And that's what we're doing when we choose to reject Jesus. We're killing ourselves. When Judas killed himself, his belly burst open and his intestines spilled out. It was repulsive what happened to him. He was eaten away from the inside. And that's the kind of destruction that happens when we do not choose to receive the love that God has for us. We are beaten, eaten up, and the only healing for what is happening inside us is this love of Christ, which he gives to us on the cross and is offered and held out to you today. And I implore you, fall upon your knees and say, God, forgive me. God, restore me. Jesus, I accept your love. I will follow you. I will put my trust in you completely. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As you walk this week, God will be with you. God will bless you and his face will be shining upon you. Stay close to him. Seek him with all your heart every day. Give all that you can in his service this week. Love your family, love your enemies, and see what God will do. Pray, ask God for mercy and help, and he will answer your prayers this week. In Jesus' name, we have studied, we've glorified him, and Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and with boldness this week. Amen.